0: Convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow managed to finish a down week on a positive note. The Dow Jones was up about 55 points, uh, 24,270 ish is where we closed. Although intraday, we were up better than 250 points. So most of the losses came towards the end of the day as the Dow was not able to hold on uh, to all those gains. It held on to some of the gains, but Russell 2000, not as lucky. That index ended up finishing a down week down on the day. Probably the difference is the oil stocks, which are really helping out the Dow to a lesser extent, maybe the S&P 500. uh, And that also closed positive on the day, but just barely and well off the intraday highs. You know, while we're talking about crude oil, We were up again today. In fact, we haven't even finished trading as I'm recording this, but I'm looking at it right now. It's at 74.40, up 95 cents, right near the high of the day, which I think so far was 74.46. So almost 74 and a half. Oil is just a powerhouse. You know, for those of you who say, "Hey, Peter Schiff, you haven't gotten anything right uh, since uh, 2008," you know, I beg to differ. I mean I've gotten some things right, I've gotten some things wrong, but one of the things that I've nailed this year is the oil market. I was very bullish on oil early in the year. I was saying that oil prices were headed up to 80 to 100 dollars a barrel by the beginning of the year. When the year started, we were barely above 60. Uh, and so 80 still looked like it was far away, but I was pretty, you know, pretty sure that we were going there. And obviously we're not there yet, but the year is only half over. And we're a lot closer to 80 uh, than halfway. I mean, another five and a half bucks and we're at 80. But I don't think we're going to stop at 80. I think it's going to be somewhere between 80 and $100 a barrel. The question is, you know, what is driving crude oil right now? Because the dollar is rising. Now, today it didn't rise. Today, the dollar index got smoked. Some of that had to do with some political news that was announced last night in the Eurozone regarding immigration. But the dollar wasn't just weak against the euro today. It was weak re- across the board. All the currencies scored big gains. The dollar index backed down below 95, 94.63. Remember, I said on my last podcast, I didn't think there was much room above 95 for uh, the dollar index to rise. And so far I'm right about that resistance level as as it couldn't hold it again. And so the dollar broke down today, but overall the dollar has been strengthening the entire time that crude prices have been rising. And normally you would expect the opposite. It's normally when you have a weak dollar that oil prices go up, not a strong dollar, but now we're getting a strengthening dollar And we're getting rising crude oil prices. Now, some of that could be geopolitical. But, you know, I think a lot of it might have to do with China uh, buying some oil. And the reason I think that the Chinese might be buying oil is we know the Chinese have been talking about selling U.S. treasuries and, of course, selling dollars. Well, if they are doing that, what are they doing with the dollars they're selling? Maybe they're buying oil. I mean, why not? I mean, why not stockpile oil, right? I mean, you're going to need it eventually. I mean, it's better than stockpiling U.S. treasuries. I mean, what good are they going to do you? Especially if you know that eventually the dollar is going to go down and oil prices are going to go up. Why not load up on oil now? uh, And that, you know, you kill two birds with one stone. And also talking about killing two birds with one stone, maybe they still kill three because maybe Some of the oil that the Chinese are buying, it's American oil that we are exporting to China. You know, Trump has been demanding that the Chinese reduce their trade surplus. Well, be careful what you wish for, Donald Trump, because maybe the way the Chinese are going to reduce their trade surplus is by selling treasuries and buying our oil which is a rotten deal for us because now we got to find new buyers for our treasuries. Meanwhile, we lose oil that we need. And now the price of oil is going up for Americans because more oil is being exported to China. Now, that's probably not what Trump had in mind when he wanted China to buy more American products. Maybe he wasn't thinking that the product they would buy would be oil. But hey, what difference does it make? If they can bring down their trade surplus, then they, you know, Trump got his wish. Right. And so they could be killing three birds with one stone. But if the Chinese are buying oil with their dollars, how much longer before they've had enough oil and start buying gold? Because the fact that oil prices keep on rising and the price of gold is going nowhere. How long is that relationship going to maintain? Not for longer. Either oil prices are going to have to come crashing down, which I doubt is going to happen, or gold prices are going to have to come shooting up. Which I think is more likely. In fact, we did get below 1250 today. I think the low was like 1248. Remember, I said on my podcast on uh, Tuesday that I didn't think there was much downside risk for gold below 1250, and you know we closed back above it. We closed at 1252.30. Also, you know, even though gold was down about 17 bucks this week. Most gold stocks were positive. In fact, today was a pretty big day for gold stocks. Some were up three, four percent. The overall gold index, GDX, was up one point seven percent on the day. It was up a half a percent on the week. You know, we had gains in gold stocks yesterday. So even as the price of gold is down, uh, gold stocks are rising because I think what the market is telling us is that this is the bottom for gold, and the gold stock investors think that there's likely to be a short term rally in the price of gold. And I agree. In fact, I think this is a fantastic buying opportunity for gold. I think a year from now or maybe sooner, people are going to look back and like, why didn't I buy gold when it was $12.50? I mean, what a gift horse this is given uh, where oil has already gone and the fact that the dollar is not going to be able to hold on to these gains. And you know, to me, the the investing community has it so completely wrong. This narrative of being so overwhelmingly optimistic on the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market, thinking everything is great, everything that happens is bullish for the U.S. economy, bullish for the dollar, bullish for the stock market. I haven't seen an environment like this since 2007, the first half of 2008. In fact, I would say that if you compare the two uh, periods for when was people more delusional, right, right, it is actually now, because at least in 2007, gold prices were making record highs. People were at least worried. Somebody was worried. Somebody was buying gold. Gold was rising to a record high. The dollar was near a record low. So somebody was worried about the U.S. economy because they, you know, they had been selling dollars. But now no one's buying gold. Everybody's loading up on dollars. I've never seen so many people so wrong about the same thing in my life. And you know, remember. In 2007, 2008, after the the subprime market had blown up, already blew up, right, huge losses in subprime, bankruptcies, all this stuff was going on, everybody on Wall Street at the Fed, they were all still oblivious, completely oblivious, and I couldn't understand it. You know, I remember that I got credit, uh, Andrew Orr Sorkin, who wrote the book Too Big to Fail, you know, in the book he quoted the Washington Post quoting me about Lehman Brothers. And I'm going to read a little bit uh, from uh, from uh, the book, you know, the little paragraph that, that that quotes me. And this is what Sorkin wrote. He wrote, "Outside Lehman, however, skeptics were already voicing their concerns, and there were not that many, right? It was it was me, and maybe there was somebody else, but there weren't a lot of skeptics, believe me. But he says skeptics were already voicing their concern. Quote: I still don't believe any of these numbers because I still don't think there is proper accounting." for the liabilities they have on their books. Peter Schiff, President and Chief Global Strategist of Europe Pacific Capital, told the Washington Post, quote, people are going to find out that all the profits they made were phony. Now, I was exactly right. The profits were phony. The liabilities were enormous. That's why Lehman Brothers collapsed and went bankrupt. But the question was, why did I know this? And why did all these big firms that actually had analysts that were looking at Lehman's books Why couldn't they figure it out? I never looked at Lehman's books. I never took a look at their balance sheet. I didn't do any research to arrive at that conclusion. I just arrived at it intuitively because to me, I knew that real estate prices were about to fall substantially. And I knew that the banks had levered up to buy mortgages which were gonna collapse in value. So I I didn't have to be a rocket scientist. I didn't even need to see the books to know how much trouble they were in because I knew how they were making all their money. And I knew that they made all their money based on booking these mark-to-market profits uh, on these mortgage books that I knew were going to implode, right? But these other experts that were actually hired uh, and and were studying all their, their, their books, they couldn't figure it out because they were so clueless. They couldn't even imagine a situation where real estate prices went down. See, that was their problem. They couldn't think clearly because of their their mentality. See, if you believe real estate prices can never fall, well, then you don't bother to entertain a scenario where they do fall because that can never happen, right? Just like these stress tests that I talk about that the Fed is doing, and now they just did the second round of these stress tests, where all they can think of is a possibility is a recession where inflation and interest rates go down and the Fed can you know print more money to prop things up. They don't bother to stress test a situation where inflation goes up, where interest rates go up, because they, they don't think it's even possible. So it's not even on their radar. But again, imagine what happens if inflation picks up. And we you know we got numbers today. I'll go into over that later with consumer income and spending, but the the prices, year over year, headline. Prices are up 2.3%. Core, though, taking out food and energy, we're up 2% year over year. That's the first time the core rate has actually hit the Fed's 2% target. The headline rate is already north and everything is going higher. But the Federal Reserve doesn't even think it's possible that inflation can get to 3% or 4% or 5%. It's not only possible, it's highly probable. But what would happen in a recession where inflation was rising And the Fed had to raise interest rates into a recession, right? That's possible. They might have to do that. That's what the Fed was doing when Volcker was around. So there is precedent for the Fed having to raise interest rates during a recession, not because they want to, but because they have no choice. So they're not stress testing that. And it's not just tighter monetary policy that we would get. It would be tighter fiscal policy. You know, Trump is already now talking about phase two of his tax cuts, which he's claiming are going to be Uh, I guess, launched or announced before the midterm election. So now the Republicans will have more tax cuts to run on, right? But if we have a recession where interest rates are rising, that means the budget deficit is skyrocketing because the government is having to pay much higher interest on the debt that it has, plus it has these enormous uh, deficits. And, you know, by the way, you know, Larry Kudlow, was on Fox Business today, interviewed by Maria Bartiromo, who's also interviewing Trump about, you know, round two of the tax cuts. But Kudlow is on there bragging, bragging about how the economy is now so good that budget deficits are falling fast. They're coming down rapidly, which is a complete lie. Obviously, budget deficits are not falling. They're rising. What he said was the opposite of the truth. But this is the whole thing about the Trump administration. It's just talk. Just keep on saying how great everything is, regardless of whether or not you have any actual facts to back it up. Keep talking about how good the economy is. And you got a guy like Kudlow saying that because the economy is so strong, deficits are, 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 are falling fast when they're actually rising rapidly. And a lot of the commentators Picked up on it. There was a lot of press that he got about calling him out on that. The person who didn't call him out was Maria Bartiromo, who's like so, you know, starstruck, you know, by Cudlow and by the president. I mean, She just kisses his ass the entire interview and it's like, just like giving him one softball after another about how he's not getting credit and the president's not getting credit for the great economy and all this stuff that's happening, right, you know, all this nonsense. Because nobody in the financial media wants to call the president out because they all want to maintain the illusion or delusion that the economy is so strong, that everything is great. And I'm going to get to the GDP numbers uh, a little bit later in this podcast, but just so I, I stay on this trade of thought. What happens if the interest rates are increasing the cost of servicing the national debt and the deficits are rising and the Fed, of course, isn't doing any QE anymore because it's raising interest rates to fight inflation, right? So it can't do more QE. It can't step on the gas and the brakes at the same time. So if it's trying to fight inflation, now the government is going to have to raise taxes so it can service the debt. So can you imagine a recession where, we have the Fed tightening monetary policy, and then we have the government tightening fiscal policy during the recession. I mean, the last recession was the worst since the Great Depression with massive stimulus. Can you imagine how how bad the next recession is going to be if we have a massive sedative during the recession? I mean, it would be a catastrophe. I mean, the Fed says that they think the stock market could drop by 65% if interest rates just stay at 3% and the Fed is stimulating. Well, how much the stock's going to buy drop if the Fed has to jack rates up in a recession? Right, but it'll drop ninety percent. Right, which is why the Fed's not going to do that. See, I don't believe for one second that the government is going to tighten the screws during a recession, no matter how bad inflation gets. Right, there's no more Paul Volkers anymore. That's gone. Right, so if we get into a situation where inflation is running hot and getting worse, and we go into recession, if we get stagflation right? The Fed and Congress are going to say to hell with inflation. Let's stimulate the economy because that's the best way to get reelected. That's the best way to prop up the markets, which is the best way to collapse the dollar. You're basically sacrificing the dollar, which is why I'm so convinced the dollar has so far to fall. And it's, you know, it's perfectly ironic that you've got all these Wall Street traders lined up on the wrong side of the trade. They're so convinced the dollar has no place to go but up But it does have no place to go. They're right about that. But the only place it's going to go is down. And it is going to go way, way down. And people need to position themselves. They need to take advantage of it. It doesn't matter how long we wait to get paid. Because the payday is going to be so big. See, I think we're going to make so much money off of this trade. Because so few people are on the right side of it. That's why we can make so much money. That's why there was so much money made shorting subprime because everybody was long the subprime market. Hardly anybody was short because nobody thought real estate prices could go down. This is a bigger bubble. More people are more wrong about this. Nobody expects what's actually going to happen. That means if you bet on what's actually going to happen, you win. It's like it's like going at a racetrack. If there's a horse that nobody thinks is going to win, right, he's a long shot. But if you know that long shot is going to come in, you're going to get paid big time because you're the only one betting on him, right? I mean, if you bet the favorite, I mean, it's maybe it's even money, right? You're hardly going to win anything. But if you know something that nobody else knows and you think this horse is going to win and you're the only guy that bets on him, then if he comes in, you win big. And that's where I think our clients, my clients, your Pacific Capital, me personally, that's how I think we're positioned. I think we're positioned to win big because everybody is betting on the opposite outcome to happen just like they were betting on it in coming into 2008. And they're just as wrong, if not more wrong. The big difference between then and now is back then, at least, you know, newspapers were calling me. Right? You get Andy Warth Sorkin uh, quoting me from the Washington Post, the Washington Post doesn't call me anymore. Nobody calls me anymore. Right? I used to talk to reporters all the time in 2005, 2006, 2007. They all took my calls. They all quoted me. right? And, and But now, nobody calls me, nobody quotes me. I mean, I haven't changed, but people now just say, you know what? Peter's a broken clock, right? They didn't think I was a broken clock back then, and then I was proven right, but now they're just completely writing me off. So they gave my point of view more credibility before the financial crisis when I hadn't gotten anything right than they're giving me now. After the financial crisis, when I at least have that track record of having called that one right. So the question is why, you know, what's what's going on? Is there something else there that, that they're not covering me? But if it's just that they don't want to cover me because they're now convinced I can't possibly be right. In 2007 and 2006 and five, they thought, well, you know, he's it's a long shot. He's probably not right. But, you know, let's, you know, let's just publish his opinion because you never know. I mean, crazy things happen. It's possible this guy is right. So let, let's quote him. But now all those same reporters and all the same television networks that used to have me on because they thought maybe there's a slim chance that I could be right. Now they think, oh, it's impossible. There's no way this guy could ever be right. He is so off the chart. He is so out there. He is so crazy that we're not going to even validate his perspective by quoting him in our publications, right? We're not going to have him on our television shows because there is absolutely no chance that anything he's saying is possibly true. So to me... That just means it's even more likely to be true, that there's even fewer people that believe that what I'm saying has at least the possibility of coming true, that they don't even want to have me on. Just like the Fed, as I said, they don't even think stagflation is possible. Because again, you look at their, their stress tests, and they talk about the situation where we have a recession, right? They go out of their way to say, we don't expect this to happen, right? We're just doing this in case something happens that we don't expect. Okay, well, if you're going to stress test scenarios that you don't expect, then why not throw in a stress test for stagflation, which you don't expect? Well, they, not only do they not expect it, they think it's impossible. So they say, look, why bother to stress test something that's impossible? Well, you know what? They didn't stress test for a big drop in the real estate market in 2007 because they thought that was impossible too, right? And so that's why they didn't, they didn't worry about it because they thought it was impossible. And now they know that it's possible. So now they're worried about that. They're trying to fight the last war. They don't realize the next war is going to be against stagflation. They think that's impossible too. Now they thought it was impossible you know, before the 1970s. And then they were all perplexed because the impossible happened. But at least there was an excuse back then because they had never seen it before. What is the Fed's excuse today for assuming that stagflation is impossible? That is the hubris of these bankers to believe they have something so under control that that's something that actually happened in the 1970s, not the 1930s, the 1970s. That's much sooner, much closer to the modern times, right? It happened and they're just completely saying, it's impossible. It can never happen again. Let's get to some of the economic numbers that came out today. First of all, we got the personal income and spending numbers, which are always a big part of the GDP numbers. And we got the main number and personal Spending was supposed to be up 0.4. Came in at up 0.2, half of what they were expecting. And they took last month's up 0.6 and revised it down to up 0.5. So that's a bad number. Personal income came in as expected, up 0.4. Uh, that was what they were looking for. So savings rate notched up a little bit, but barely, still just off the record lows. But that caused the Atlanta Fed to take its uh, GDP estimate down today. From 4.5, which was just shy of the 4.7 that they were at a week ago, and today they dropped it all the way down to 3.8 percent, still much higher than it's likely to be, but now it's well below 4 percent or a little below 3.8. Never, Trump Jr., I mentioned this on my last podcast, you know, he jumped the gun and he was, he was bragging about it. He was tweeting about this 4.5 percent GDP growth as if it had actually already happened just because it was being forecast by a Federal Reserve that is notorious for being overly optimistic. You know, the St. Louis Fed has their own GDP now, and they were at about 3.3 a couple of weeks ago. They're down to 1.3. I mean, they're way below consensus, but you know, you got the Atlanta Fed at the highest. They're at 3.8. Then you got the St. Louis Fed down at 1.3. I think the New York Fed is somewhere in between, but they're still below two, three. They're in the twos somewhere. But this is not this booming, roaring economy. In fact, earlier in the week, we got the final revision to Q1 GDP. And remember, Q1 GDP, that is the one where the Atlanta Fed had it at 5.4 at the beginning. And the most recent forecast for Q1 was 2.2. Well, we got the final version and it was 2.0. So look how far they were off from 5.4, it ended up 2.0. What's so great about that? I mean, how many quarters did Obama give us 2.0? I mean, maybe on a first quarter basis, this was a better first quarter than most of the first quarters that we had under Obama, but not by much. Plus, remember, Bush has the benefit of these huge tax cuts, which give you some kind of short term boost in the long run you know, we're going to have a lot of pain associated with that game, but it's like he's cheating. He cut taxes. He's like, you know, he's like, you know, using steroids. You would expect a much bigger performance if you're on steroids, right? He should should have won the race uh, by a much larger amount. But even with the steroids, 2% growth. Now, maybe you say, well, we can have better growth in uh, Q2. Okay, let's say the Atlanta Fed is right and we end up with 3.8% in Q2, which I doubt we're going to get. I doubt we're going to be north of three. But let's just say we are at 3.8. Well, if you average 3.8 and two for the first quarter, you get 2.9 for the first half. So we're not even at 3%. Forgetting about four and 5%. If the Atlanta Fed's optimistic scenario is right, which it is probably not, we're still not going to have 3% GDP growth for the first half of the year. And I bet that whatever Q2 is, that is the high point for GDP for the entire year. So if the first half of the year is one point, it's 2.9, I believe the second half of the year is going to be well below that, probably below two. So we'll be lucky if we get two and a half percent GDP growth for the year. I mean, think about the, you know, pie in the sky expectations that we have. And I think it's very likely that we're going to enter recession before the end of the year. Now, I don't think that the numbers will reflect that this year. But when they go back in 2019 and go back and redo the numbers, they may go back and officially revise down maybe the third or fourth quarter into a negative number so they can backdate the start. Remember, that's what they did with the Great Recession. I mean, they didn't even declare the recession, I don't think, until 2009. And then they went, or late at the fourth quarter, maybe of 2008. But then they backdated it to the fourth quarter of 2007, right? So, you know, they go back and they change the numbers, you know, And I think the same thing is going to happen this time around, but the point is you have all of this optimism that is completely unwarranted. You have the stock market at record highs on a valuation basis, more expensive than it was in 08 or 2000 based on these lofty pie in the sky earnings estimates based on uh, economic growth that is not going to happen based on the idea that we're never getting another recession when not only is one around the corner, but it's actually going to be worse than the Great Recession. And the only reason it won't be worse statistically is if we have so much inflation that it's hard to tell because the Fed basically sacrifices the dollar. And so, you know, the dollar is imploding. But if you look around the world, what happens when the markets, when you have a big burst of inflation, I think asset prices still fall. I think even if inflation is accelerating, we know bond prices have to fall. Even if the Fed is buying them, bond prices are going down if inflation is running up. But I think the stock market is going to go down. It may not it may go down less than it would if the Fed just, you know, slammed on the brakes and just said, "Okay, well, you know, we'll just let stocks implode, if they just let companies go bankrupt, if they let the government jack up taxes or force the government to raise taxes, but if they bail the government out, if they try to bail the banks out and bail investors out, uh, by you know printing all the money, then I think they will limit the, the nominal downside in the market. But in real terms, right, the price of stocks in terms of gold as a result of inflation, stocks will lose a lot more value in terms of gold under the scenario where the Fed just gives into inflation than would be the case if the Fed actually fought inflation and just let the chips fall where they may. But I just think politically, the odds of that are very, very slim. So I wanna bet on the outcome that I think is most probable. Finally, again, let me wrap this thing up by uh, talking about Bitcoin, because I've got a debate on Monday sponsored by Reason in, uh, I think it's in Soho in New York with Eric Voorhees, who's gonna be uh, debating uh, positively for Bitcoin. The topic is, you know, is Bitcoin a bubble? or something like that? Or is it going to change the world or whatever? And, you know, Eric Voorhees, obviously, is going to be arguing uh, in favor of Bitcoin and that it is uh, revolutionary and that it's going sky high. And I'm going to be taking the opposite point of view that it's just a bubble, it's a fad, that it's going to implode, and it is not going to uh, replace the dollar, the euro, or any currency Uh, as money uh, that as bad as the fiat monetary system is, the crypto system is even worse and is likely going to collapse first. So that's going to happen Monday. I know they sold out the event. I'm sure it's going to be up on YouTube uh, as these debates often uh, end up on YouTube. So everybody will have an opportunity to listen to it. Meantime, you know, as I am recording this, Bitcoin is still trading below the supposed 6,000 support level. The low overnight, and I'm looking at Bitstamp, and I know this is just one of several exchanges, but on Bitstamp, the low today was 5,774 for Bitcoin. It's about 59.50 uh, ish as I am recording this, so still hanging out below uh, the, the, uh, the 6,000 level. I think even more important, though, than just Bitcoin itself is all the altcoins and just how they're losing value even faster. I'm looking at the uh, percentage of total market cap that Bitcoin represents. It's now up to 43.1%. It's been creeping higher and higher as the total market cap of all the cryptos has been going down. As I'm talking now, it's $236 billion and change uh, for the total market cap. But if you look at the charts, I would say that Bitcoin dominance is going to rise back above 50 percent, getting close to 60 percent again. I don't know if it's going to get above 60 percent, but I think it's going to go through 50 on this correction. On the, or not, This isn't a correction. This is the primary trend now, which is down. So I think we're going to get to where Bitcoin is somewhere between 50 and 60 percent, maybe even close to 60 percent of the total market cap. Before we have a correction, and then we have a rally, right? This is the this the the going down is is the right thing to do. So if it goes up, we're just correcting the downturn until the next downturn. But I think the market cap is going to fall on this decline. My guess is it's going to fall somewhere between 150 uh, billion and and 200 billion, and probably closer to 150 than 200. But I think somewhere in there, right, you're going to get you're going to get some buying, right? Because still people are bullish. Nobody wants to sell, right? And no one is worried. And and in fact, people would feel they're foolish to sell because, hey, why should I sell my Bitcoin for 6,000 when it used to be 20,000, right? They're still focusing on the 20,000. So they're not scared about losing the 6,000 they have left. They're greedy. They want the 20,000 back. They want more. When the market bottoms out is when they're just worried about what they have left, when they're down to their last 500 bucks and and they want it, right? They don't want to lose that too. Right? That's the point where you get the capitulation, where you're not greedy to get the highs. You're fearful of losing what little you have left. And we're not even close to that. In fact, I was laughing. you know, I was talking about uh, CNBC on Fast Money. And yesterday, they're promoting somebody who's going to be bearish on Bitcoin. They're like, we got a Bitcoin bear and you won't believe how low he thinks Bitcoin is going. I'm like, oh, Really? They're going to put someone on. They're a bear who's going to talk to us. They never do that, right? Everybody is bullish, right? And so they bring this guy on and he's like, yeah, oh, I think Bitcoin's going down. And it's like, well, how low do you think it can go? And basically, well, another 10%. 10%? 10% down when you're, we're at 6,000? You think the risk is another 10%? I mean, that's a bear. And then he was saying, but if you're a long-term buyer, you should be buying now because, you know, there's not that much risk. This is the bear. This is the best they can do. Even when they bring on a bear, he's a bull, right? He's still a crypto bull. He still believes. He just thinks there's maybe another 10% downside. Why don't they bring on somebody like me, you know, who, who actually thinks that, you know, it could go way all the way down, that the whole thing is a bubble. You know, here's the irony of it all when it comes to these guys on Fast Money. Because they used to make fun of me when they would have me on. And they made fun of me because I believed all this nonsense about the Fed and fiat money and, you know, the the Fed is, you know, know, the dollar is going to collapse because they're printing too much money. This monetary system doesn't work, right? People should be buying gold. See, the crypto people say all the same things as me except they say buy Bitcoin instead of gold, right? They're there, you know, they're critical of the Federal Reserve, the monetary policy. We need a competitor to dollars or euros or yen. All these central banks are creating a problem. You know, they're printing too much money and the banking system is flawed. So they say the same thing as as me, but their conclusion is, so buy Bitcoin, right? And now these guys have all the credibility, all the respect, they'll have them on the air all the time. They won't make fun of them, for their rationale for buying Bitcoin, but they make fun of me for my rationale for buying gold, right? I mean, I, mean, I, I we have the same criticisms of the, the central banks and the monetary system. We just have a different uh, investment recommendation to guard against it. But my perspective is completely discounted. I'm a nut. I'm crazy. You know, this is all impossible. Well, why don't they say the same thing to these Bitcoin guys? Oh, well, what's the point? Why would anybody need A replacement for the dollar. The dollar is so sound. The Federal Reserve is so great. Why would anybody need Bitcoin, right? They don't say that nonsense there. Oh, they're, they're in love with Bitcoin, right? Oh, this is great. So they are so captivated by the rise in the price that they can't even think clearly because, you know, this is a bubble, right? Even people who would normally be against it are caught up in it. So this will be an interesting debate that I'm having uh, on on Monday. I haven't uh, participated in one of these uh, in in a while, so it'll be fun. I'm sure I'm going to be in a hostile audience because, you know, there's a lot of libertarians who are long Bitcoin. So, you know, it's probably going to be an audience full of people who are predisposed uh, to uh, have an opposite uh, perspective than mine. And so we'll see if I'm able to convince many people. Not only that I'm right, but to actually sell their Bitcoins. See, that'll be interesting because there's gonna be an audience full of people that own Bitcoins. And the question is will any of them actually sell any of their Bitcoins as a result of what I have to say? Or are they gonna take me as a contrarian indicator? And are they going to use this dip <laughs> as a buying opportunity? Hey, my final thought as I'm looking at my YouTube channel. I'm noticing that I'm finally getting close to having 200,000 subscribers. I have 199,400 and change. And, you know, it's been a long time. I've been uh, promoting or doing videos on YouTube for a long time. I look on the channel. I started with my first video on March 17th, 2009. So I've been doing this uh, for about nine years. So it's taken a long time to still not even be at 200,000 Subscribers. I, mean, I think when I started way back then, maybe I thought I would be at a million subscribers by now, but I guess it's going to have to wait until this whole collapse happens <laughs> before enough people start searching for me again that I can take my subscriber base up to a higher level. But again, I'm close to 200,000. I guess that's considered pretty respectable as far as uh, serious uh, podcasts or serious uh, uh, YouTubers uh, like me. I mean, I'm not just putting up a bunch of entertainment for kids, uh, I don't have, uh, you know, uh, the normal type of stuff that would generate uh, a lot of subscribers. So it's still not that bad. But, you know, if you haven't yet subscribed to my YouTube channel, a lot of people, of course, they listen to my podcast, not on the YouTube channel. Some people listen to it on YouTube, uh, but most people probably don't. But if you're not subscribing to my YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe and help put me over the top so that by the time I do my next podcast or Video blog, whatever, next week, that maybe I can be over the 200,000 uh, mark. In fact, maybe you can be the person to put me over the top, right? If you happen to be, you see that 199, 999, you can actually be the 200,000 subscriber. Uh, but don't hold off because if everybody holds off waiting to be number 200,000, then nobody's going to subscribe. So just leave it up to uh, the luck of the draw, right? When somebody happens to Uh, click on at that particular moment and if you're already a subscriber just tell your friends, right? Send somebody an email or send them a text or tweet or something and say hey check out Peter Schiff's uh, YouTube channel Uh, just subscribe to it and let's bring the total subscribers uh, to over the 200,000 mark